Hello, welcome to our next to the last class of the Ephesians lesson. Let's begin with prayer. Father God, we come to you and we're grateful for today. We're grateful for your word that's being preached not only in our church but all over the world on the Lord's Day. Just ask that you would open our hearts lighten our minds to discover and appreciate wonderful things from your law and from this wonderful letter of Ephesians. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, come to Ephesians chapter 3. And my goal is to get through Ephesians chapter 3 by this week and next week. And actually plus tease out a few more things beyond it, just to give a little, there's three more chapters that we're not going to get to, so there'll be some connections made to chapters 4, 5, and 6 as we go along. But Ephesians 3 is uh, is a little, It's there's some interesting things going on here, because if you look at the text, notice what it says. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, or for you Gentiles. And then then he doesn't finish the sentence. He, there's a little dash there in your ESPs, right? Or in whatever. There's, it's like, it goes, wait a moment, wait a moment. Also, now look, look down in verse 14 of the same chapter. Notice... He starts, he says it again. What he said in verse 1, he repeats in verse 14. You see that? For this reason, I, Paul, um, well, he doesn't say Paul again, but he says, I bow my knees. So it's interesting. It's like he was about to launch into that beautiful prayer in verse 14. And it's like, wait a moment. I got more to talk about. And he puts a parenthetical big parenthetical statement between verses 2 and 13. I think it's interesting how ESV puts a dash at the end of verse 1, but there, there should be like another dash at the end of verse 13 to kind of, sh- or parentheses, to show you that this is kind of like a, a chunk of an excursion, if you will, that Paul's, Paul's like, wait a moment, before I, before I bow my knees and do the prayer, which I've been eager to do since chapter 1, i got some more explaining to do. And, and this little section is it's interesting. It's personal. There's some personal information about Paul in it. And, um, but there's also a whole lot of, I would say, clarification to some of the things he's already said. So it's, a, it's an interesting section. It's different from the first two chapters, but it's helpful. It's a very helpful section because it's going to clarify, I think, make clear what he said in chapters 1 and 2 and, and get, get us ready for what's coming. So just just to note that this is kind of like uh, an excursion or a dis, just a diversion, if you will. But it's it doesn't mean it's not important. It just means it's it's a, a change of thought. Like hey, on behalf of you Gentiles, ooh, oh, there's something else I gotta say. And um, perhaps a reason for that is one thing about Ephesians that's always made, been curious to me is. He doesn't have a whole lot of interaction directly. He doesn't have anything specific 
not a whole lot specifically worded for this church like he does in the Corinthians, for example, where he's got regarding this little issue you got with this guy, we got to deal with his church discipline and people getting drunk at the communion table, we need to deal with that. And even in other letters like Philippians, he's dealing with an argument between two ladies in the church. He mentions them in chapter 4. Would you please get along and stop arguing? There's none of that in, in Ephesians, nothing specific. So it's kind of a, makes you wonder, what's he writing this for? What's When he writes his letters, he's usually got something in mind that he's trying to communicate, a problem or a clarification he needs to teach them something. Encourage the Philippians to get along, those ladies in particular. The the main point of Philippians, by the way, is unity also. I know it's it's think like minded towards each other, which is a big theme in this book, as Jeff went over a couple weeks ago, unity being perhaps the theme of the whole book. But what's the issue? What why is he writing this? What's motivating him to write this particular set of wonderful writings, all this beautiful theology, so poetic, so amazing to read and think about what's motivating this? Why is he doing this? And it doesn't really, I don't think there's a real clear statement. And and people who study this, I don't even know if they think about it, but some people are offering up ideas. But here's an idea I have that I think to me makes sense as to why he's doing this. I think this particular church had an issue with not thinking they were a legit church, that they were second class. We know from chapter 2 they're largely Gentiles because that whole last section of chapter 2 was, he even said, you remember what you were as if they were all Gentiles. So they're, if they're not exclusively Gentiles, they're mostly Gentiles. And he's essentially told them, remember you were far away, now you're near. Don't think you're far away anymore. Now you're near. Jesus brought you near to the cross. You're you're the le- you're legit. You're the real deal. You're the real church, just like the churches that came before you, just like the Jewish churches that in Jerusalem and Antioch or wherever, and these other places that started it out. You guys seem, I think Paul's sensing from them that they think they're second class. They're just not as good as that Jewish church down the road, so to speak, or in Jerusalem or wherever. They have what I would call low church esteem. And Paul's writing this letter to correct that. He's saying, no, that's not true at all. That's not true at all. You guys... You guys were chosen before the foundation of the world. You were chosen to be adopted as sons. God's lavished grace on you. He's made known to you all this wonderful, wonderful knowledge about Jesus Christ. He's made you a believer. He's raised you with Christ. He's seated you in the heavenly places. He's brought you who were far near No, don't think about yourselves as second class. You are the true church, just like every other church. Recognize who you are. Don't think lowly about yourselves. 
one of the verses he says back in chapter 1 that kind of hints at this, I think, where he starts to say this, in that very first section we just studied so many weeks ago, remember he said in chapter 1, verse, uh, let's look, 11, 12, and 13, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, we, collectively, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, notice he says this, we, Paul, guys like me, the Jewish guys, the the apostles and prophets even, the ones who preceded you, we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Then in verse 13, in him you also, you guys too, are included in this. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you too were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So right there it's like, here's what you're thinking of me and us and my guys and the church I came from. You too. It's it's for you. You who believe. So he, right from there he's starting to like build their church esteem, if you will. There's, there's, you are part of this. And then it becomes much more clear in chapter 2 in that whole section we did last week. Remember what you were? That ain't you anymore. You are a new man created in Christ when he died. So he's, and then also you're part of this beautiful temple he's building at the end of chapter 2 and this beautiful dwelling place. And one of the things he said at the end of chapter 2 that I didn't, I just didn't talk about at all last week really, he says, In chapter 2, verse 20, or I'll start in 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's, That's something I skipped over. I didn't say anything about that. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so basically what he's saying is, is, Guys like me, the apostles and prophets, laid the foundation, but you're part of it. And perhaps one of the things this church, this church that thought it was, wasn't really belonging to this beautiful church that God's building, that they were second classes, maybe they were thinking, the apostles and prophets, don't you wish we had one of them in our midst, an apostle and a prophet, to lay a foundation for us? And then I think Paul's got that in mind when he comes to chapter 3 and says, For this reason, I, Paul, basically he's saying in this, Oh, by the way, I'm your apostle. I'm here. I'm, I've laid a foundation for you. Don't think you're missing out on the apostles and prophets deal. I'm your apostle. Remember I said in verse chapter 1, verse 1, Paul the apostle? Now he's going to make it personal and say, don't worry about the apostle and prophets thing. I'm one of them. <laughs> I'm one of them. And, and he, he goes on to describe himself, though, in very humble terms. He says first in this section, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And that's, 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 uh, that's usually not how somebody introduces themselves when they go to a speaking engagement. Oh, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus, because most of us aren't prisoners of Christ Jesus. What he's actually talking about here is he is writing from prison. He has been in prison. If you read the end of chapter of Acts, you know that Jesus, that Paul, 
Paul was imprisoned. And what's interesting is the way he says it, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, that's a weird thing to say. If you've been put in prison, if you read Acts, who imprisoned him? It was angry Jews in Jerusalem. They're the ones who imprisoned him, right? And then they wanted to kill him. And if you read how the story goes on, eventually he had to appeal to Caesar to get out of Israel because they wanted to kill him so bad. So now he's a prisoner of Caesar in Rome. There's no mention of him being a prisoner of Christ Jesus and all that. But Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And it's just fascinating because what I think he's saying with that is Christ Jesus put me in prison. I'm in prison for Christ Jesus, but I'm also his prisoner. Under his, in his sovereign choice, I'm in prison. I'm here. And I'm here for you. I'm in prison for you. And he's, he's not bemoaning the bad circumstances, saying, oh, woe is me in prison. Please get me out of this stinky, rat-infested place. He's saying, no, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you. And it's, it's positive. He presents it positively. Like This is entirely in the will of God that Paul be in prison. Christ Jesus has determined that he be in prison for this church and other churches of the Gentiles. It's just fascinating that Paul would say it that way. And then when he gets done with his excursus, notice at verse 13, right before verse 14, I think this idea that Paul, this apostle of ours, is a prisoner, obviously when you hear he's a prisoner, you're, you're concerned for his well-being and you're worried about him. And then he says in verse 13, Therefore, I ask you, don't, don't lose heart or be discouraged at my afflictions. Don't worry about me. My afflictions on your behalf, and the on your behalf occurs in both verses 1 and 13. You can see the parallelism there. I'm in prison on your behalf, and I'm still in prison on your behalf in verse 13, but don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. This is all part of God's plan. God has me in prison for a purpose, and one of the reasons I'm in prison is so I can write this letter to you. If I wasn't in this prison, I wouldn't be writing this letter. And he happened to write three other letters from prison. He made good use of his prison time. He didn't complain about it. It's like, no, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the Gentile churches. And, it, and the imprisonment didn't stop him from caring for and laying a foundation for and loving and, pr and praying for these churches that he had fathered, in a sense, and planted throughout the Roman world, he's writing letters to them. He wrote one to the Philippians. He wrote one to his friend Philemon in the church at Colossae. And he also wrote one to the Colossians, which was a church he'd never even been to. So he wrote four letters from this place. The prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So Paul is a prisoner. He recognizes it's under the sovereignty of God, and he recognizes that it doesn't stop him being the apostle to his churches. No prison can contain this message, this gospel, this word. So that's a fascinating little take on Paul, just the way he described himself. Now, Jim, yes. Just 
That's fascinating. I really, that's really great insight. Also, just geographically, they were pretty far removed yeah. from sort of where all the other churches were, right? And I think we went over that with Jeff. He showed a picture of they're on map. they're in Turkey. Yeah, they're on the so they're, Turkish side of the Aegean. So they probably even felt more isolated. Isolated, perhaps. Yeah. And and Paul. We think he's imprisoned in Rome based on, that's what Acts says he was there. But, I mean, it could be somewhere else, and people debate that. Because, actually, one of the reasons they think he wasn't in Rome when he wrote Ephesians and Colossians was Rome is so far away from those two places. Colossae is close to Ephesus, too. That it's like, how in the world would these letters have gotten there? So there's people are postulating. Maybe he was in prison in Corinth for a while, so it's a little shorter distance and Whatever, it's possible, but the fact that the distance, the remoteness, to your point, Ephesus is far from Rome, Colossae is even further from Rome, and he's writing letters to them, and Philippi is not that close either. It's a little closer, but not. they're all far. From wherever he's in prison, it can't be easy to get these letters out, but he's doing it anyway. How does this discussion about him calling himself a prisoner connect with when he described himself as a bond servant, he and other writers who yes. Well, he does call himself a bond servant, I believe, in Philippians actually, mm-hmm. and um, several other letters. Uh, it's good to compare that. How does that compare to prisoner? I don't think. I think when he says prisoner here, he means prisoner, because this is the only. Well, he might say it in Colossae too. Colossians. When he says bondservant, he's essentially saying, I'm a slave. The word bondservant means slave. And he's acknowledging right out of the gate. It's always in the beginning introduction that Jesus is my master and I'm here. So in a sense, I guess, because he's the Lord's bondservant, he's, all, he's in prison by the will of his master. So in that, there's a connection there. But he's, he's taken a little further. He's saying, not only am I a slave, I'm actually in prison as a slave. I'm more. I'm worse than a slave. I'm in prison. I'm a enslaved prisoner. But it doesn't doesn't stop. He's not complaining. He's not complaining at all. He's like, it's for your behalf. It's for your good. In fact, verse thirteen, it's your glory. He he finishes with which is your glory of all things, right? It's glorious that I'm here, writing this to you. That's something to think about. We'll we'll think about that as we get to it. I think it'll make more sense why he means that as we get to it. And then one other thing about Paul at the end, the only other time he really gets into anything personal is at the very end of this book, chapter 6, when he finally gets around to calling us to pray. He actually asks for them to pray for him in 6.18 and 19. 6.19 in particular. Just listen to his prayer. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, for the holy ones, and also for me. Pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. There it is again, chains, indication of where he's at. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So his prayer request is not that get rid of the chains. Or get me some money 
give me some clothes, give me some food, give me some care, some health care. No, his prayer is solely for that I may boldly proclaim the mystery of Christ. The mystery of the gospel that he's going to talk about in chapter 3. Pray that I can continue to do this in this exalted place that my Lord and Master has put me in this prison and these chains for you. I'm the prisoner of my Lord Jesus Christ. Not just a slave, a prisoner in chains. And, and to tie in, last week you talked a lot about um, the service, as when we do good works, uh, that we're showing God's, going, showing forth God's right. glory. Right, right, right. A lot of time on that. And in this, that words may be given to me, and not in my mouth, boldly to proclaim that, the, that that's a service that he's doing for us. As I'm reading. Right. That, I am giving God glory for what God did in Paul that he right. was able to do what he did. And so it just kind of ties, ties in. And it starts to make sense of which is your glory a little bit. Starts to start to tease it out a little bit. So you have Paul and he goes off, oh by the way, I want to bow my knees for you. But before I bow my knees and pray, that beautiful prayer at the end of this chapter, he says I got some more things that just brought up to mind to help you guys out. And essentially, in verse 2, he starts a whole different idea. And if I want to break this into sentences like I've done, like one isn't even a sentence. One is a run, just a half a sentence. For this reason, I, Paul, the su- subject and just hangs there. There's nothing on the other side of it except for this, these verses. So he starts over. So one sentence is two through... 7, and the second sentence is 8 through 11, and 13 is like a sentence all by itself. So 1 through 7 is a single sentence, and it starts off, the main point is, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of the grace of God, or the plan, or the different translations say it differently, stewardship of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. So it's basically, have you heard of this? And if not, I'm going to explain to you how, how I can be the prisoner of the Christ Jesus on your behalf. Have you heard? Have you heard that it's not just that I'm in prison? It's, have you heard that the grace of God has been given to me on your behalf? The grace of God has been given to me. He actually says that three times in here. Verse 2, he says, of the stewardship of the grace of God, which was given to me. And then I think he says it in 7, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God that was given to me, according to the working of his power. And then verse 8, to me the very least of all the holy ones or saints, this grace was given to me to proclaim the Gentiles the good news of the unsearchable wealth of Christ. See, three times he says it. I've been given grace. I've been given grace. It's, It's all grace. I'm the prisoner of the Lord, seated here, but I have the grace of God, and, and I have a stewardship, a plan. The God, God has planned to use me this way. This, this word for stewardship, by the way, um, shows up later in the same, in the same uh, place. It's, it's, it's used in three places in Ephesians, and it's translated differently here because the idea is, well, I think I have my notes on it too down there in my little 
footnotes. But if you see the word plan down in verse 9, and to enlighten everyone as to what is the plan, that's the same Greek word as stewardship. Okay? And also in chapter 1, when he went through that first, chapter 1, verse 10, is the other place it shows up. Chapter 1, verse 10 says, um, verse 9 says, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. That's the same word. Plan for the fullness of time. Plan of the secret. And then, in this case, if you put the word plan in there, according to the plan of the grace of God, okay, it was God's plan to give Paul a stewardship of grace. So the, the idea, the Greek word can mean, as it's being used in verse 2, you see it, it's being used, it was God's plan to give like a job for Paul to do. And it's up to God, it's up to Paul to steward that grace, but it's all part of God's plan. So the, the words are, the stewardship of the grace of God implies it was God's plan to give it to him, and now Paul's just going to give it out to us as he writes and prays and does that apostolic thing that he does. So God gave him a stewardship and it was given to him for you, you all, you guys in Ephesus in particular as he's writing. It's a plural you as are most of the you's in this, this letter because he's writing to a church of believers, not to individuals. And... So he's given him a plan, a stewardship of the grace of God. And what else is he is Paul doing? Well, he's he's how is he dispensing the plan? Interestingly, in verse three, he refers to something that he's written. It's a revelation of the secret or the mystery, which we'll get to later. I'm, I'm talking about Paul right now. What is God using Paul for? He's given Paul a revelation of the secret. It was made known to me just as I have written before in brief. I've written to you before in brief. And the word there in verse 3 is written before. It's written, it can be translated written above. So what he's referring to for sure is what I've already written in the previous two chapters. If you, I've already written about this plan. I've already written about this mystery that he's going to reveal. It's been written briefly in the previous um, 45 or 50 verses that we've already gone over. But I think it also can imply the, the letters he's already written. Because this is not the first, this is not Paul's first rodeo, this letter. Um, we're quite sure he wrote Romans was done by now. Galatians was done by now. Both Corinthians, both Thessalonians. So that's six letters that we're pretty sure were written before Paul got imprisoned. And we're also pretty sure that those letters were already circulating among the churches because the churches immediately recognized this isn't just Paul speaking. This is the Holy Spirit. This is inspired literature. So he's not just probably referring to what he's written in this letter. I believe he's also referring to what you can read in Romans. You want to learn about some of the phrases I talked about, about children of the wrath of God? Check Romans out. That'll give you a good feel for that one. You want to know something about the Spirit of God imparting love, joy, peace, and patience? 
read Galatians. I've already written about that. So he's admitting, hey, I've written, I've written, I'm writing now, and I'm writing this, I'm writing in, in brief. And then, but why did he write it? He, write, he wrote that people could read it. That's why he's writing. And what I, what I like about verse 4, which by reading, when you read, you'll start to understand my, you'll start to understand what I've, this mystery. You'll start to get it. And I, this verse kind of caught my attention because one of the things I've noted about the New Testament, maybe you've noticed too, is that there really isn't an explicit command for the church to read scripture anywhere in the New Testament. And, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not, um, remember what Jesus says? He doesn't say read. He says, listen, hear. Hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches is what Revelation says. Listen. It's always a listen command. And, uh, and, and you hear, well, in church they tell me I should read my Bible. The Bible doesn't say I should read my Bible. The Bible says I should be listening, right? And, and where's this read command? So it's like an excuse not to read your Bible. The Bible doesn't say I have to read it. I just have to listen to it. So just listen, listen, listen. And that's good. But I, I, then you just come to the realization that we live in a culture where we're spoiled because we're all literate, or we assume we are. Get high school educations. We can read. So everybody reads. So, of course, read, read, read. But most Christians, if you think about it, most Christians in the last 2,000 years have not been literate. They couldn't read. And the only way they could hear the gospel was to hear the gospel. It had to be spoken to them. It had to be preached to them. It had to be taught to them. And that's all they had to do. They had to hear it and believe it. That's how you become a Christian. Hear and believe. He even says it here in Ephesians 1. When you heard the word of truth, verse 113, in him whom you heard the word of truth. This is how you get saved. You don't get saved by reading. You get saved by hearing what it says. Heard the, heard the word of tr truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. You were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. So the way you get saved is hearing it and believing it, not by reading it necessarily. But there's a place for reading. And, I, and what tickled me is when I saw this, it says, hey, reading, you read, when you read. Oh, cool, there's a place where he's encouraging us to read. He's not commanding it because I don't think the majority of the people hearing it can't read. But if you can read it, by all means, use your skills and read it. Because if you do, I think verse 4 teases it out a little bit, you'll be able to perceive my insight. You'll get a better feel for what I'm talking about if you read it, if you can read it. And thankfully, we in our culture have the gift of literacy, usually, and if we foster it, if we don't lose it after we get our high school diploma, you can lose literacy if you don't read, continue to read. But here he's, he's basically saying, hey, by the way, if you read, if you actually read what I've written, you'll, you'll understand me better, is what I think he's, one of the things he's communicating in verse 4. You'll get it. You'll get it better. Think about it. Read it. Study it. So this is an, this is an exhortation to, to read that I finally found, and I'm happy that I found it because I was wondering where it was. Where is this 
this exhortation to read. Why should I be re- reading Scripture? Well, Ephesians 3, 4 encourages me to read Scripture. So, so if you were wondering, there's a spot. I'm sure there's others too, actually, but I like that. That, that kind of tickled me when I read that. So by reading it, you're able to perceive my insight into this mystery. And regarding Paul, other things, like I said, I'm skipping the mystery for now. We'll get to that in part two of when we talk about it. So read it. And um, then he's going to mention that the mystery is revealed by... Apostles and prophets. Putting the, like I said, the mystery aside for a moment, he mentions the apostles and prophets. Verse 5, it was been, it's now been revealed. It was hidden in ages past, but now it's been revealed by now. Now it's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And this is where I made the tie of, you know, these guys might have thought, Who's our apostles and prophets? We don't get any of these highfalutin apostles and prophets around these parts anymore. And Paul's basically saying, you're reading them. I'm it. You're not second class because, as I said earlier on, you've had an apostle, at least one, actually more if you read Acts. There was all kinds of highfalutin, powerful leaders who went to the Ephesian church at times. Apollos. Prisca, Aquila, Timothy. So they actually had quite a few. But here he's like, the apostles and prophets, of which I'm one. And I think this also, this is a tie back. This phrase clarifies what he meant in chapter 2 when he said the the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. And this is a note I want to make. Because normally when I've always read, when I always read this, and most people when they read it, the section about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. The first thing that I think of when I take that and just lift it is I think, what are the apostles and prophets? And I, you're probably thinking this too, the apostles, they wrote the New Testament and the prophets wrote the Old Testament. So it must be the New Testament and the Old Testament. He's talking about the, the scriptures. It sounds cool, but that's the same apostles and prophets are mentioned here like, what, eight verses later? And it's pretty clear he's not talking about Old Testament prophets. He says, now, the apostles and prophets. So he's not, the apostles and prophets that Paul had in mind weren't the ones who wrote the Old Testament. Based on this context, it was a group of people who were out there with, the prophets were a group of people like the apostles who were, basically revealing the mystery of the gospel to the churches as they got started up. So the apostles and prophets in chapter 2, even though it sounds cool and clever to think that that's the Old and New Testament, remember Paul, the Old and New Testament were not compiled yet. He's writing the New Testament. There's still a lot of books to be written. So he's not saying it's contained, the foundation's contained in this written scripture because it hadn't been written yet as he's writing to this. But there were traveling apostles and prophets that we read about in Acts. And by the way, you can find certain people designated prophet in the book of Acts. Agabus is the one that comes to mind. If you search Agabus, you'll see that he was a, called a prophet. And he was respected as a prophet. 
And actually, another person that you might not realize was titled prophet was Silas. That might surprise you. Paul called, no, Luke, when he wrote Acts, called Silas a prophet. And you know who Silas was? Anybody? Paul and Silas at Philippi in the prison? Yeah. So Silas traveled with Paul. And Acts calls Silas a prophet. Let me let me find that for you. Um, Acts 15. Let's see. 15:32. In Antioch, Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So there's a little obscure text, but Luke calls him a prophet. So there's an evidence of one of the prophets going around. Silas was a prophet too, according to Acts 15. How is he defining the word prophet? We don't know. I can't answer that. <laughs> That's beyond my pay grade. Um, I'm just making the point that when he wrote Apostles and Prophets, it's convincing to me that he wasn't talking about Old Testament prophets. He was talking about guys like Silas who travel with me and also preach the word and have laid the foundation for you and are doing elsewhere. And how they, who they were and what their office description was, uh, I guess more speculative than anything else. We don't have enough evidence to lay it out and say the office of prophet did this. I mean, you look at what Agabus did. He was actually predicting famines and predicting that, Paul would go to prison and be bound. So Agabus, at least, was predicting the future, frankly. So we don't know. Silas just traveled with Paul and preached. And those are the only, and this guy named Judas, or Silas, or who's the other one? Uh, he's not mentioned anywhere else. This Judas is not Judas Iscariot, or even the Jude that wrote the letter of Jude, probably not him either. So we don't know anything else about him other than Paul saying that this foundation is being laid by this, these guys right now. Right now, they're laying the foundation. And yes, eventually, they die out and we're left with Scripture, which is their writings. And um, by the way, Silas is also known as Silvanus. He's credited with helping Paul write First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians. And Peter claims that he helped him write First Peter. So Silas is engaged in writing scripture as well. Just just to throw that out there. So apparently prophets perhaps could write some scripture or at least help help some apostles write some scripture. So that's just a little uh, side note on the apostles and prophets that I had always thought it meant Old and New Testament until a man much smarter than me pointed this out to me that just a few verses later he's talking about prophets that are now alive with Paul. And why would he have something else in mind a few verses before if he didn't mean that? For whatever it's worth, it's not like it's a critical, important. If you think the prophets were Old Testament, it's heresy or something. Nothing, nothing along those lines. So um, what else with Paul? I got in my notes. Oh yeah. So he's one of the foundation layers. I said he's one of the prophets and apostles. But in verse seven and eight and nine, he talks about 
him being the servant. And this isn't the slave bond servant word that you mentioned. This is the servant word that we, from which we get the word deacon, actually. Diaconus is the Greek word. So it's, the, it's like a deacon type minister of service. A minister of service. Not a slave, but a minister of person. The, per, the word diaconus means somebody who ministers to the church or ministers in a religious setting. First Corinthians in the 12th chapter, it mentions the offices in the church at that time. And they say and prophet. And Ephesians 4 will list that too. Ephesians 4 will list it too. He gave to the church first apostles, then prophets. And 1 Corinthians 12. So yeah, there's an office. What they did, and I don't want to get into that. There's too many, too much controversy over that. What, who they are, and when, if they ceased, and all that. But based on what's written here, they certainly existed when Paul wrote this, and he's referring to them. But anyway, in verse uh, three, uh, nine, he says, "To which I was made." Is it nine or eight? Seven. Seven. Of which, talking about Christ Jesus, if you look right before that, in Christ Jesus, of which I became a deacon, a, a minister, according to the gift of grace once again. So the gift of grace made him this servant. And it was given to him by the working of God's power, which is a phrase we've seen before in Ephesians 1, where God's power raised Jesus from the dead and raised the church from the dead too. The people who believed were raised with Christ. So he's a servant, which, and he's also a very humble servant. God's power made him this, yet in verse 8, to me, to me, this grace was given. The third and final, the grace was given to me. But he calls himself the very least of all the holy ones. And actually the word very least could be the least of the least. The less the, He's like using an superlative in the wrong direction. Like you think of the least of God's servants, and slave, not servants, holy ones of the saints. Think of them and I'm below them. So I'm the least of the least. I'm a prisoner. I'm an apostle. I'm in prison, but God's power made me a minister and made me a steward of the mystery of God that I'm writing about and explaining to you. So he's very, very humble. And what was he called to do as a servant? Verses 8 and 9 say that. Verses 8 and 9. To me, the very least of the saints, it was given to proclaim good news, to preach is, is maybe what the ESV says, but it's the word to proclaim good news that actually was talked about in the previous chapter when it said Jesus came and preached peace to you who are near and to you who are far. This is the same word. He was called to preach, preach something. And what he preaches is the unsearchable 
riches or wealth of Christ. He's called to preach about the wealth of Christ, the unsearchable wealth of Christ, wealth that's so deep and so wide and so incomprehensible. It's inexhaustible. The wealth has been talked about before. He's used the term wealth four or five times in chapter one and two, talking about the riches of the inheritance in the saints, the riches of God's grace. And here you have the riches of Christ. And Paul, this lowly, lowly servant in prison, is called to preach about these unsearchable riches, inexhaustible riches, unquenchable riches. It it never runs out. He'll never go into debt. Christ is so beyond... So beyond uh, value, and and Paul is he's in prison, writing about it, and he's content. It's it's like he's like this is this is God made me powerful enough to preach this wonderful gospel about the riches of Christ from this prison cell with chains on my legs, and he's not complaining, not at all. Just ask him, remember, just pray that I can preach effectively. That's all I ask you to pray. That I can continue to preach with these chains seated here in this cell, preach effectively because his riches, even in this cell, his riches are inexhaustible to him. And they are to you too. So that's what Paul's called to do. And he's also, in the next verse, not only called to preach, he's also called to enlighten everyone as to what is the mystery or what is the plan of this mystery that's been hidden forever. So he's also called, his ministry is also a ministry of enlightenment, if you will, to open the eyes of the blind. And that word enlighten was in the prayer in chapter 1. When he prayed, he says that the your the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Remember that? Back in one eighteen, I think, or seventeen. So he's using the same word here. Paul is also a minister to enlighten people, to see see the wealth of Jesus, see the glory of God, to see the fatherhood, see this beauty. And he's doing it from a prison cell writing. Writing letters. And proclaiming when he can to the people around him. If you read the end of Philippians, he actually says, Oh, by the way, the uh, saints and Caesar's household say hi. And that means that they probably heard the word from Paul. And Paul was saying, Hey, I got some I got some fellowship here. Caesar's own household is getting saved. I'm good, don't worry about me. The word's going out. So that's Paul, and that's how Paul considers himself. And now he's been talking about this mystery throughout. So now it's time to talk about this mystery or the secret. The, the word mystery is, we like to leave it in there. It sounds, it's really, I like leaving the word mystery in, but it's not the idea of mystery that we in the 21st century or think of when you turn on Matlock or murder she wrote or those kind of mysteries it's not nothing like that it really is 
probably better translated secret because what the way he describes it is it's something that was unknown. He says that in verse 5 and he says it again in verse 9. It was hidden and now it's not. It's revealed. It was hidden in verse 5, the early part of verse 5, but in the second half, now it's revealed by the Spirit. So really it's just a secret. It's like God was holding some withholding information for a period of time and now it's released. So technically it's a secret, but when you read it, I like the word mystery. Mystery just sounds cool. and we, That's why I think that English translations kind of leave it in there, even though it's not really, it might confuse people who don't know what that means. In fact, the Greek word behind it is the word mysterion. So it's the word from which we get mystery. So that's the other reason they stick with it, because it says mysterion. And uh, it's just a cool sounding word. I mean, verse 5 Sounds a lot better when you say mystery. I, I translate it with secret, I think, but it's like, ee, I don't like the sound of that one. Verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And, um, yeah, I said in verse 3 that according to Revelation, the secret was made known to me. And I footnoted it means mystery usually. and Shows up in several other places in this passage. The mystery is something that was hidden, hidden in other generations, was not made known to the sons of men. So prior to Christ coming and becoming a man and dying and being raised and being exalted to the right hand of God, this, and and not only that, but chapter 2, tearing down a hostile wall and creating a one new man church that's now his body. You really need to take it to that extent, especially in Ephesians. Prior to all this happening, nobody was expecting it. They weren't, it's like, that was not the plan. If you read like um, the messianic expectations of the Jewish community back in those days, not one of them had any thought of the Messiah doing it the way Jesus did in terms of gathering in the nations. That was the part they definitely didn't get. The, the, the nations part, bringing in the Gentiles, was that was something they weren't, they weren't expecting at all. And that's what this mystery that he's talking about is. That's the secret he just revealed in chapter 2. There was a hostility. They were far. Now they're near. That's the mystery he's talking about. He's talking about that mystery because he actually says it I think in verse 6, that the Gentiles, there it is, verse 6, this is the mystery that was revealed. And I like the way he says it, that the Gentiles are, and I, the way I translated it, if you just look at it, are co-heirs, co-bodied, and co-partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. All three words, the second word is actually made up by me and made up by Paul. It's the only place it ever occurs in the New Testament. He made a, he invented a word, co-bodied, which you'll find other Greek writers referring to this verse that use it because they're copying. Oh, Paul, what's he mean by that? But he's, he's, he made up a word there. Co-heirs, co-bodied, co-partakers. The Gentiles are heirs just like the original church, the Jewish church what is. Like I said, remember the 
these guys may very well have thought they didn't belong. He's, no, no, the mystery is you do belong. You have the same inheritance they do. You're part of the same body they have, of course. One body. How can Christ have more than one body? You're all one body. He made one new man. And you're also partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You guys are legit. And the three words, co, 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 that I've got there, co-heir, co-bodied, co-partakers, they have that preposition in front of them that's been mentioned before. Jeff mentioned it two weeks ago. It's a little soon, soon in front of it, which means with, together with. It means together with. And he used those same three soon prefixes back in chapter 2 when he said that we have been made alive together with Christ. That has a soon and a co in front of it, a soon. We have been raised up with him together with Christ with the soon and we have been seated with him in heavenly places with a soon and here he's got the three soons coming in again describing the Gentiles you are heirs with everybody else co-heirs you're part of the same body as everybody else co-body you are partakers of the same promise as everybody else there's unity amongst us we're one new man that's the mystery. That's the mystery that has been revealed. That's the mystery that Paul's writing about and has been finally revealed in Christ Jesus. And the apostles and prophets, like Paul, are the ones explaining that. They're going around to the world now. They're not just restricting their message to the Jews who, unfortunately, according to the Acts narrative, aren't responding very well in large numbers and they've kind of like, okay, you guys aren't listening. We're going to go to people who do. And the Gentiles are pouring in all over the place. And they're, that expression of the church is just as legit as the original Jerusalem church. Just as real. Just as important to God. Just as much the bride of Christ as anyone else. That's the mystery. The mystery is everybody that Christ is calling in, receives the same promise, becomes part of the same body, receives the same inheritance. And of course the inheritance I mentioned, remember earlier on, the inheritance I believe isn't stuff, it's the privilege of dwelling with God. The inheritance is, God's inheritance in the saints is, I'm building a place to live with them, my dwelling place, chapter 2, verse 22, right? That's God's inheritance. And our inheritance is to dwell with him. So really the inheritance is we're going to be living with him forever, living with our triune God, our Father, Son, and Spirit. So that's the co-heirs. We're in one body. We're partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's interesting the promise is singular and has an article in front of it, the promise. And you think, oh, the promises, you'd think maybe. But it's actually, he's, he's highlighting one main promise. And that promise, Jesus says in the Gospels, the promise is the promised Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God coming to dwell with us that he's going to pour out on those who believe. So, um, yeah, John Edie says that, my favorite commentator, that the promise is most likely the promise of the Holy Spirit that he has in mind. Some could say it's the promise of salvation or other things, but 
It's like the promise of being in Christ Jesus, which entails having the Spirit dwelling in you, which means Christ is in you while you're in him. It's a two-way deal. We're in Christ, but he dwells in us. His inheritance is us. Our inheritance is him. And the inheritance is dwelling with each other. That's all. That's what's going on. That's the mystery that's been revealed. He wrote about it already. He's restating it here. He's clarifying it here. And it's quite beautiful to behold. And he's going to start to launch into what could only be classified as worship in verses 10 and 11 and 12. Because after verse 9, remember he's getting back to saying, hey, I'm the least of the least and God made me a minister to preach. When he gets to verse 10, he reveals the purpose, the ultimate purpose. He kind of restates the ultimate purpose that he's already said twice in this book. Actually, we can go look at those other places where he said this purpose. Let's read 10 first, though, so you can get a feel for it. This is the reason what God's after. It starts with a so that or an in order that. That's a clue that this is a purpose statement. The whole reason Paul's out there preaching, God's made him, empowered him to be a minister, to enlighten the eyes, is this, verse 10, so that now, right now, it may be known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. And that's a purpose statement. I remember Jeff said, led you all to show you the purpose statement, what he thought thinks is the purpose statement of the book in chapter 1. Well, let's read it, and you'll, I think you'll discover it's the same, saying the same thing. It's say, he's saying it over and over again. So let me get back to Ephesians 1. Since I'm in X, <laughs> there it is. But like 110, 1, 9 and 10, saying something similar. Purpose statement. Grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan. There's that stewardship word again. For the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, you say, well, is that really what he just said? I think they're related. So his purpose is to unite all things, not just people in Christ, but all things. Everything is going to be united in Christ ultimately in the fullness of time. And a way about doing that shows up in chapter later in chapter 1 when he raises Christ, verse 20, the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Now we're getting somewhere in the heavenly places. That sounds like verse 10. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now that very much sounds like verse 10, 310, right? He's 
verse 3, verse 10, he's making known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And here, Jesus is in the heavenly places far above all the rulers and authorities and the powers and dominions. So he's the, the rule and authority of, of 121, the rulers and authorities, same words that are showing up in here at 310. So he's raised Jesus, put him far above all these guys in the heavenly places, all his rule and authority and power. And the fact that 310 says it's in the heavenly places gives us a clue that he's probably referring to rulers and authorities that are spiritual in heavenly places more than he is human rulers. Although I would certainly say human rulers are included in this superlative in chapter 1. If he's far above the spiritual rulers and authorities, he's also far above the human rule and authorities who are influenced by them often. So regardless... God, the Father, put his Son at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, and power. And here at 3.10 he's saying, he's using that same phraseology, the secret was hidden and now it's revealed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. So if you connect the two, 3.10, the 1, 20, and 21, you see that there's this Christ is there. So it's a display of Christ is somehow related to this far above all rulers and authorities, 310 in the heavenly places that he's showing off. And then he says in verse 123, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So you see the connection with the church that he talks about in chapter 2 being created in the death of Christ is his body he's the head those who are in Christ are seated with him in heavenly places chapter 2 verse 6 his body is with him in heavenly places we're co-bodied with him if the Gentiles so Jesus is far above all rulers and authorities his church is far above all rulers and authorities because his church is in him. He's the head of it. And somehow, this is all written in the past tense. It's already happened. It's already certain. It's already guaranteed, despite what our eyes may tell us. We're there in Christ already, far above all rulers and authorities in heavenly places. But verse 10 here says... He did this to make known to those guys, those rulers and authorities, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. It's like the whole point of why he's doing this. One of the, the main point he's talking about here is he wants all these rulers and authorities, all things, to see his wisdom in doing this and putting Christ in and a body of all nations, people from all nations, far above far above all the rulers and authorities. Christ is the head of them, and they are also. This church is put on display, according to verse 310, to let these guys know, these rulers and authorities, how wise God is. And then, there's, there's more about this theme. Chapter 2, 
verse 7, oh, verse 6, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So remember in verse 7, the purpose was to show the grace of God to these people who are in the heavenly places with him. And here it is, verse 10, finally, it kind of, I think, ties it all together. It says, okay, if you take the thoughts I said in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, and this is the, this is the point, this is the purpose. This, this was God was hiding this, and now he's revealed this. This is what he's doing in the church, through the church. The church is the means by which this wisdom of God is made known. He's putting this grace of God on display for the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places and everyone else under them to see the manifold wisdom of God. It's, it's, it can be helpful to say the believers, yes. It, it's a collect, but it's a collection. It's a physical collection of believers, too. Right, because then, yeah. uh, you know, otherwise someone who is, comes to Christ but isn't a member of a, you know, a church or something, then they are a member of a church but not, not a physical one. Right, the, the idea of church, right. I, yeah. That's, that's exactly right. But the word is ecclesia, ecclesia which means gathering of believers. So it's still it's still a physical gathering that the word means. It doesn't mean some. This is just like Christ has a physical body in heaven. One day we will have a we will be there physically as well, and right now his physical body viewable to the rulers and authorities on this planet right now is local expressions of people gathered together, believers gathered together. So the church is always a collection of people. It's never individuals. It's always more than one gathered. That's part of what Paul's communicating in this, that not one of us individually is the church. The church is always made up of members. Well, it would seem like thinking of it It may. It, it, church, you know what I mean? it may. Here's Paul talking about, you know, abolishing the, the dividing wall of hostility and all that. And, mm-hmm. and I think that still is a kind of a, a barrier to a degree. It, it can be, yes. Yeah, I mean. It can be. Yes, agreed. But it's not, it's like you're replacing one word with a big phrase, too. So mm-hmm. if you want to insert that into every time church is used in the well, ESV. Uh, yes. It's not. It's not a building. It's not. It's not this building. It's yeah. not this institution. It's the gathering of the believers that call this place home, or we gather in this building that we call a church. But that's not what Paul's talking about. The building, that building. He is talking about a building in the end of chapter two that he's dwelling in. But it's actually the people, not brick and mortar.
Two or more. Oh, two or more gathered, there I am in the midst. Yes. Yes. So that's the purpose. That's the ultimate purpose that he's talking about in here. It's, it's kind of like when you read it, I, I think since I'm all usually looking for what's in it for me, I'm like, eh, let's get past verse 10 and go to verse 11. Because verse 11 is, well, verse 12 actually. 12 is the one that where we, we enjoy 12 more because 10 is like, oh, that's his deal. But we're supposed to camp there and think about this is, this is a big deal. The church, this gathering of believers and local expressions and eventually all at once that he's building is meant to show the grace of God to everyone, chapter 2, verse 7, and also to reveal God's wisdom. His wisdom, and, and part of the wisdom, I think, is it was wise for him to hide this until the appropriate time when Jesus came. It wouldn't have made sense. And it, the hiddenness is also, there's, there's something else going on with the hiddenness. When it says hidden from the ages in God in verse 9, the word ages there, literally it does say hidden from the, the, uh, the eons. And I mentioned this a few weeks back, that the word eon can sometimes mean the course of this world. That's how it's translated in 2 verse 2. The eon, the word age shows up there. And we walked, formerly walked according to the eon of this world. So not only is it hidden from the ages time-wise, because an eon is a long period of time, but it's not just the long period of time. It can also mean like the worldview that pervades and everybody adheres to out there. And there's multiple worldviews and multiple eons in a sense different ways of doing life, culture to culture, millennium to millennium. Well, he, he didn't just, this hasn't just been hidden from time eternal in the past, if you will, but also it's just been hidden from every culture, including the Jewish one for that matter. I mean, they had, had it written, but they didn't understand it. All the, all the courses of this world didn't understand this. They all got it wrong. And in some sense, they still do, because that's what Jesus does when he breaks into our hearts. The Holy Spirit is he turns the lights on, he enlightens our hearts, and we see, oh, everybody else is getting it wrong. <laughs> this is the real deal. And the church is the place through which God reveals the real deal, the gathered believers they see God's wisdom in taking these nobodies, these people who could be prisoners in Rome, enchained, and Paul and those with him are in Christ, and therefore we're actually above, in some sense, as said here in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, he's in charge. He's in charge so that Paul can confidently write in his prison cell with confidence. I'm his prisoner. I'm for you, and it's for your glory. Verse 13. And 
after placing this this beautiful view of what God's intention for his church, his body of believers is, is to put on notice the world and say, this is, this is true wisdom. This is, this is my wisdom. This is beautiful, whether you like it or not. This is it. So God's putting on a display of his grace and his wisdom and that's amazing. And according to the purpose of the purpose of the ages worked in Christ Jesus our Lord that I translated it literally there according to the purpose of the ages the eternal purpose is how that's normally translated but it's literally the purpose of the eons which he worked in Christ Jesus our Lord the whole purpose of every age that's gone before and going in the future is to ultimately going back to chapter one uniting everything in Christ that's ultimately 110. That's the ultimate purpose. All of this stuff, all of these worldviews that are opposed to God, all these rulers and authorities, good or bad, they're all going to be in Christ someday. They're all going to be united in Him. The believers just happen to be the first fruits. We're the ones that are there first. And we're... In Christ, therefore, we're above even all that. All that's going to be somehow in Christ in the future. And how how do you imagine what that looks like? I don't know. I know that you're not saying this, but what you're just saying sounds a lot like universalism. What, what you just said, that everything. I'm not saying it. Paul's saying it in 110. He's not saying universalism, I agree. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and earth. That's what he says. And that means good and bad. Everything is united. It doesn't mean they're saved. It means they're bowing the knee. That's what it means. They're bowing the knee. He's the boss. Hell is not a place ruled by the devil. Hell is a place of people submitted, bowing the knee to God forever in t- torment. Yeah, the, the idea that the devil's running the show. No, it was made for the devil. No, the, everybody in hell's bowing the knee before Christ. Every knee shall bow. And with the devil and his angels, if you're not in Christ, it's going to hurt. The picture is, is ugly. You're not going to enjoy it. But it'd be universalism only in that sense. They're under Christ, all things bow. But no, no, they're not in Christ, enjoying fellowship with the Father. That's reserved for the people of God, those who make up the church. So, does that clarify? Which is where everyone would be going. If they're not part of the church, yeah. That would be the teaching of Scripture, yeah. If 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 we're if yes yes but yeah the Paul says it here in chapter one verse ten he also said it in Philippians chapter two about every knee shall bow that's what he's talking about every knee bows every tongue confesses that includes the ones who don't 
I mean, the, what's the difference? If, just to get along that thought, we're bowing too. They're bowing, but the difference is we know God is Father and we're His children, and they don't. That's really the difference. They don't know God as Father. They know Him as the judge, the ruler, the king, who's meeting out their just desserts. Remember the first one I was talking about, nobody invites the traffic cop over for dinner because they know him as the traffic cop only. He's the, he's the enforcer. He's the judge. He's the, he's the guy you try to avoid running into in your life. And yet they're sentenced to, under his authority in a negative sense forever, while those who are in Christ, Abba Father. God's dwelling with them, family, relationships, my children, my father. And, and that, that actually leads us to verse 12. Because despite his big picture of what the church is to God, displaying to the rulers and authorities, there's, the individuals are important too. It's not just a corporate thing. It's an individual there's individual benefits. And verse 12 gets to that. In whom we have the boldness and access and confidence through faith in him. So this gathering of believers is made up of individuals who have the privilege of boldness and access and confidence through the faith in him, through the, the faith that they have in him. Faith of him is literally how it would be translated, but that's kind of confusing in English. This faith that we have in him has given us boldness, access, and confidence. The word access showed up in chapter 2. Just to, I made a note of it, 2.18. So we talked about the access once before. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. No, that's, that's chapter 1. Chapter 2.18 says, For through him we both, we, the both, the two, one new man now have access in one spirit to the Father. So he's, he goes back to this. We have the boldness and access and confidence to the Father, through the fa- to the Father through the Son. If you connect the verses and the ideas, and this boldness and confidence, those are kind of new words that he hasn't used yet. But I think it helps explain why Paul is who Paul is. He's bold and he's confident sitting in that cell. He is very bold. That prison circumstance is not getting him down because the truth of this mystery revealed and everything he's talked about, he sees where he's at. He knows where he is. They may have me in a prison cell with rats, but I have access. I have access and I confidence I have access and I'm boldly confident that I have access. The word boldness this doesn't come through in the English but the word boldness in Greek actually doesn't mean boldness in general it specifically means boldness in speech boldness in your ability to talk and communicate now we don't translate that that would be another interesting phrase we have boldness in speech and access But every time the word boldness shows up, and it shows up in all kinds of places throughout the New Testament, Hebrews has a bunch of boldness 
references as well. It's boldness in speech. And I'm bringing that up because think about it. We have access to God, but access to our Father, but what do we do when we get to our Father? Do we just sit there and bounce on his knee? Maybe. Maybe that's what we need. But generally, we like to talk to him. Hey, Dad. Not that we would call him Dad. That's We talk. And we talk boldly because we know he's our father and we're his children. So this little phrase, boldness and access and confidence through faith in him, is Paul's actually sort of hinting at something that he doesn't actually explicitly tell us to do until chapter 6, and that is to pray. Boldness of speech as we access God, that's, that's, that's prayer. What else could it be? It's, it's going to God boldly, talking to him, listening to him, communing with him, worshiping him, all of that. Prayer is everything. It's not just request. It's also worship. It's, it's just a two-way conversation with God. We, Paul has it, and you guys do too. And then Paul's going to demonstrate it in the very next section. I bow my knees. I'm going to boldly pray for you. You do the same. So there's like an example for us to follow. We have this boldness. If everything Paul said is true up until now, and we are believers, and we have this faith in him, we have the boldness to approach him confidently. Does it also, not only in that direction, but also in our horizontal relationships? And in it does. I don't think he's talking about that in this text. He'll get to that in chapter 4. Okay. I mean, chapter 4 is speaking the truth to one another in love. Right. Commands like that. So yes, chapter 4 will get to the horizontal. But right now he's just saying, remember who you are. This is like this, he's finally got to the summation. I think I've clarified myself. If you didn't know what this mystery was, my role, think of it this way. The church is displaying the manifold wisdom of God, and you guys, individual members of the church, have bold and confident access to your Father. Therefore, I bow my knees, verse 14, and... And he prays. And uh, that's that's next week. So let me bring this one to an end. Does anybody have any quick questions before I close it out? Any more clarifications? All right, let's pray then. Lord, thank you for your opportunity to study your word. I pray that your word would not return void. It would build the faith of each of us as we realize the truths that you have promised for us in your holy scriptures. Ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.